Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. Okay, so this week we are having a think about some of the negative, unintended consequences of this whole impact thing and what we might be able to do to avoid some of the things that can go wrong when we try to have a benefit for our stakeholders, for the world. Uh, and so I want to think about this uh, in particular in relation to the uh, the RAF results, which have just uh, come out. Um, uh, this is being recorded just prior to the results coming out, but interested to have a think uh, about impact uh, through the lens of the Research Excellence Framework in the UK. Uh, which uh, is arguably driving a lot of the impact activity uh, for good and for ill. And to do this, I am privileged to be joined today by Professor Gemma Derrick, who is a professor of higher education at the University of Bristol. And she was with us uh, a few weeks ago uh, in one of the community of practice sessions talking about this work and discussing this with many of you. But this is my chance to get to go a bit deeper and to share this conversation with you guys as well. So, Jammer, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you with us today. Um, uh, and tell us a, a little bit more about your thoughts on, uh, first of all, this, this whole idea that we can uh, assess impact um, uh, and in so doing drive impact. Uh, and so whether the cost in terms of the negative unintended consequences of, of this is actually worth it. Oh, goodness. Let's start off with the easy question then, shall we? <laughs> thanks, so Mark. It's great. thanks so much, Mark. It's absolutely fantastic to be here with you. I think when we talk about um, the things like the REF driving impact, I think that we need to acknowledge the, you know, imp- the hidden cost or the hidden aspect of impact that that drives the whole conceptualization of impact, which is the fact that there's always an assumption that the impact from research has to be good. It has to have a benefit. It has to have, you know, good outcomes for society. And that's how you prove its worth. But research and knowledge production in more more generally speaking, it's constantly evolving and it's constantly gaining and losing value. Uh, and I think that what we what started this whole um, piece of research is the understanding that this this benefit or this bias toward positivity was embedded and completely um, implicit within all all you know definitions of impact beyond academia. And and we as a research group, because we started this as part of a a large uh, collaborative project with my late colleague Paul Benneworth as well, we, we acknowledged that, well, this implicit bias towards positivity was perhaps, you know, only showing half of the half of the half of the story. And, and by only showing half of the story, we neglected to really, you know, embrace the wider impact that research can have on our society the good the bad and the ugly so that's what drove it too so the idea that you know you can drive impact 
If you want to buy into the idea that you can drive impact, then you also need to accept that in the future at some point as as research evolves and gains and loses value, that you are going to have inevitably a grim pact as well. So we wanted to look at the reasoning why grim pact occurs. Yeah, so this this term grim pact, you, you haven't misheard, Gemma. This is a, a term that uh, that you coined uh, in a paper. I'll put a link to uh, to the paper uh, into the the show notes so you can read that in uh, in more depth. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think this is a really important concept. Um, I think even from that kind of point of definition, what actually is impact um, and this implicit bias. I looked at um, definitions uh, of impacts from across uh, academic and uh, non-academic publications and found exactly that same bias. And so the definition that I published in my research policy paper last year uh, was about, yes, demonstrable and perceptible. Perception matters. Uh, and actually, when you bring perception into this, uh, this becomes a whole lot more subjective. And we realize that there are a whole lot of value judgments here. And what might be good to one person in one place in one context could be the opposite of good uh, and very bad uh, in other contexts. But many of the, the, the negative unintended consequences you've looked at um, uh, are, are arguably just bad. Uh, these are, are things that have gone badly wrong. Uh, and that if we could understand uh, what these, uh, what, what is the, I guess, the anatomy of a, a grim pact uh, and the factors that lead up to this and, and cause this, might we be able to predict ahead of time and crucially avoid these? So tell us a bit more about uh, the, the concept of grim pact, how you're defining this um, and these causal factors. Uh, and maybe a bit more about the research itself in terms of how you've actually defined these in relation to, to various uh, real world examples. Yeah, sure. No problem. So I think that the first thing we need to do is we need to acknowledge that grim pact or the definition of grim pact is fluid. And that's something that through our research, we're trying to pin down by conceptualizing the factors that contribute to grim pact. I mean, we have to acknowledge, and I think most of your listeners will agree, that impact is something that exists beyond the REF definition or the Research Excellence Framework definition in the UK. And that's where GRIMPAD exists. GRIMPAD exists beyond these definitions used primary for research evaluation purposes. Because research evaluation, as the past research has shown, is looked at to reward research. It's used to incentivize research. So it is understandable that impact that is you know submitted to these ex- exercises will have an implicit positivity associated with them but grim pact is when things go wrong so grim pact is not just negative impact it's i think that's a little bit too simplistic to see it as negative impact but really what grim pact is 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 the perfect storm of of different components that involve things like miscommunication between researchers and stakeholders loss of control of research as it evolved and is used and utilized by other um, stakeholders other than the ones that were initially envisaged by the researchers at the beginning of the project um, I think it's also, you know, misconduct, academic misconduct comes through there in a little while as well, um, as well as the idea that the expectations about what the research will do doesn't necessarily meet up with the reality of what the research has done and being able, not being able to acknowledge that. So um, I think that when we talk about how we learn to define research or, or, or how we learn to define GRIMPACT, I think we need to acknowledge you know, some of the methodology that we did. So what we did is we 
took the assumption that Grimpact is something that can really only be envisaged in hindsight. So we took, um, we chose three very obvious uh, case studies and we did what's called a vertical case study analysis where we looked at the facts of the case and started to categorizing the effects or the impacts or the grim impacts. And, and when we see impact, we're even broader than a ref definition. We'd respect any, any influence that this piece of research had had on society. So we chose three case studies. Uh, the first one was the MMR uh, vaccine debate with Andrew Wakefield with the original Lancet paper published in 2005, I think. Um, and then there was the, the second case study was Cambridge Analytica, which was a far more recent case study, but something that was very much very dynamic and had interesting long range uh, impacts on society beyond academia. And the third case study was the uh, was the debates or the economics debates used to underpin the financial crisis in 2008. And we kind of looked at the characteristics are associated with that decision making, decision making, and you know the the assumptions that were that were assumed during that piece of uh, during that period, and how that contributed to grim impact. And we we systematically mapped the effects as we found them, and we really really were tuned on to looking at commonalities between these case studies to see what characteristics were. Uh, very much, you know, characteristic of a grim pact because we assumed that all these three case studies were a grim pact, and we found a number of different characteristics which led to this definition of grim pact that I previously said, and they were uh, a sense of academic misconduct, a lack of control, an attri attribution error, who's to blame? Is it the researchers? Is it just something out of control? Uh, and the third one. Uh, third way that lack of control we called the contagion but the third way is we said a violation of normal impact and normal impact is the impact that we that's the impact that we you know we include in our ref case studies these are the ones with have good stories between responsible relationships between civil organizations and researchers and somehow uh grim pact was a violation of this arrangement at the time so these were the four characteristics that we came up and can i just say we're finding new characteristics as we go forward too because like all research this grim pact study isn't something that has an end date it's something that we continue to evolve over time especially when the rep results come out so that would be exciting <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if I can dig in on one of these that you've been talking about, this loss of control. Um, and and then it begs the question, um, loss of control for whom? And um, and if you look at, uh, at say, the, the Cambridge Analytica case, for mm -hmm. example, um, uh, uh, even some of the, the groups who were, who were benefiting from misinformation around MMR and such like, um, by, by taking control of the public debate based on, uh, based on that research um, or uh, the, the tools that were provided um, through uh, Cambridge Analytica, uh, they clearly um, uh, benefited. So there were, were the political benefits, um, uh, benefits for particular ideologies. Uh, and and so we might look in um, at some of those uh, those those ideologies um, and find that very problematic based on our values, um, and yet for for those who were were, were passionate about um, getting Donald Trump uh, elected or, or whatever it might have been, this 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 was this was a benefit uh, for them um, uh, and uh, and a supposedly a legitimate use of um, uh, of of these tools. 
So uh, to, to what extent do you have to have many of these factors present? Because it's only when you then layer into something like this, uh, the, the various forms of misconduct, uh, misuse of data, uh, etc., that uh, we can quite clearly categorize this as grim pact. Otherwise, couldn't you argue, well, it's still in the eye of the beholder, it depends on your values and on, on your position in that debate. Yeah, well, I guess the fact is that we kind of don't take an ideological stance when it comes to examining these things, which is why we chose the case study approach that we did, uh, because we understand that, you know, it, it, it might have had a gr one person's grim impact might be another person's impact. And we realized that. And we were really interested in looking at commonalities between the three case studies. So these are not, you know, things that we cherry picked out of the air. They were common across all of it. Um, the loss of control is really important. And the reason why the loss of control is really important is not necessarily ideologically based, is that grim pact is contagious. It acts fast and it acts fast between a combination of factors. Uh, there is the desire for us to communicate our results or from research to a lay audience, which basically puts it into a, an audience or a discussion area that we have no control over. Um, and so that when we, when we, when it when it is introduced into that section, there's always a risk that it's going to be co-opted for for ideas or or for things that weren't intended. So there's always this danger, and and the lack of control was very important because we saw those in all of our case studies, for better or for worse, is is not was not the focus of of our analysis. The fact that it lost control once it was disseminated within public, and I think this is something that's perhaps not necessarily acknowledged when we talk about impact as opposed to a wider definition of impact which includes grim impact and this is the idea that in a way having a plan towards impact so the pathways to impact statements we used to do for the SRC uh, you know the AHSC grants or the research council grants and now embedding it into our research in a way they're futile <laughs> because you know you can have a plan and if everything goes to plan then yay, you get an impact. It, it, it does reinforce the idea that impact is something, impact or impact is something that can be controlled, that can be planned, that can be pushed. And all these things are to a certain extent true towards guaranteeing impact. But on the on the way, there are you know ways in which a research is used beyond that plan. And if we don't aren't open to it, then we are not open to stopping it before it happens. And that's where grim impact occurs. So we argued in our paper that the, the run, the rush to gain impact, uh, to the rush towards accepting uh, linear conceptualization as impact is something that, you know, is a product of good planning that we have to do before we even start the research, you know, in a way creates a narrow mindedness about how impact occurs, which is blind to the risk for impact. And we have to call it the risk for impact because not every research, not every piece of research is going to have a impact. You know, some of them might not. They can only do wonderful things and bravo to them. But knowledge is, is fluid. Uh, knowledge is adopted by many different people. It transformed and it's sometimes transformed beyond the person who created it in the first place. Um, and so that is where grim pact occurs or where the risk for grim pact is higher. And what we did by identifying these four characteristics of grim pact, that's the violation of normal impact, the attribution or, or questions about who to blame, uh, grim pact is contagious, um, as well as it's, it's a 
it's due partially to a transgression on misconduct is identify and characterize and be able to identify the the situations where the risk for impact is higher for a researcher. We don't want our research to have a negative influence, but evaluation means that these negative influences don't necessarily have a negative value for you as a researcher because you can't be to blame, but it does send an argument that the only impact that we should be monitoring are those ones that have a positive output or a benefit. And this is a problem when we come to research evaluation and research management, because we need to be open to the unknown and the unexpected as well. So I agree when it comes to evaluation, I think we need to to shift much more from summative to formative uh, when it comes to evaluation and to, to, to use uh, a much more holistic evaluation framework to look for the things that went well, things that didn't go well from different perspectives, so that we can learn, so that we can apologize um, if things didn't go well. Uh, and in my experience, it's, it's actually when I'm doing an evaluation, it's only when I actually explicitly ask, is there anything we could have done better that people then start to say, well, actually. <laughs> yeah. and, and that is the point where you need to, first of all, apologize, but secondly, work out what could we do to reverse to make better or at least to prevent that stuff from happening again yeah i think i think the idea that impact is something that um occurs as a result of this plan uh and is is something that happens independent and it's something that has a, a start so when you do the research and an end means that we are blind to the way that research can evolve and also the learning opportunities we have as researchers, as research managers, as institutions, as policymakers, the opportunity we have to learn from our mistakes, because mistakes will happen, towards a greater understanding of what impact or impact is in the future. I think that that would be a missed opportunity if we were completely blind to impact moving forward. Yeah, totally. I, I do wonder if we have a difference of opinion, though, when it comes to the, the role of 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 planning impact um, when it comes to avoiding uh, these kinds of grim pacts. So uh, I guess the, the question that I want to ask you, and I'll see how, see how you go with this, um, maybe we are on the same page after all, but um, how can we ask researchers uh, do our best to avoid grim pacts before they happen? Now, I know you took a retrospective approach, but uh, based on your research, what are some of the key things that we can do as researchers to prevent this stuff from happening proactively uh, at the outset? Oh, well, I would definitely agree with you for a plan. I mean, I like a good plan and a plan is essential. And being a plan is a good exercise for us to go about what the value of our research might have, who would be interested. You know, people do the same sort of things in risk assessments for technologies. And so it's very similar for, for impact going forward. A yeah, good plan, a good is plan should actually have a risk assessment built into it. Uh, what are your risks? Yeah. What are your assumptions? What could go wrong? How can we mitigate them? Um, and certainly the fast track uh, impact planning template builds that in. So uh, I think that's essential. And it also will increase your likelihood of getting funding uh, if you can think of the risks uh, before your reviewers uh, actually point them out. Uh, and then you get your funding and you manage for those risks. Um, and just, just simply asking that question as part of the impact planning process, I think can be hugely valuable. I think that that's exactly what you need. I think the way that we the impact is being evaluated at the moment is independent of that kind of risk assessment, which I think is a vital exercise. And I'm glad that that you have built that in um, into your 
into your formats as well. What I'm thinking about how Grimpact can be avoided. One of the characteristics of Grimpact was this violation of normal impact, which is basically the communications that happen between researchers who produce the knowledge and stakeholders who use the knowledge. Um, And sometimes it's a little bit of when there's a mismatch between expectations about ownership of the research, uh, ownership of the narrative research as it evolves, and the ability for individuals and institutions to correct themselves when new information appears that contradicts previous beliefs. And so when we talk about what can be avoided, the most important aspects to avoid Grimpact from our research would be to make sure that those communication uh, channels between researchers and stakeholders are continually um, open and that stakeholders are aware that knowledge changes and that perhaps they need to be a little bit more agile and flexible to change their position or the use of the information as new new knowledge um, expands. But the other thing is that... And if I can interrupt briefly, and the other issue is stakeholders change as well, and you need to yes, be yes. aware enough of your state changing stakeholder landscape. Yeah, but then you get into difficult any. situations. Yeah, but then you get into a difficult situation where the stakeholders' needs should not be what drives the research. You would like to think that research exists beyond just stakeholder needs and that stakeholder needs are um, about using it. So I don't want to go into research saying I have to prove X equals to Y. I'm going to go in and investigate X, and if it has an effect on Y, that's great. But, you know, the stakeholder needs shouldn't necessarily be involved in that. And I think this is where misconduct issue characterization of Grimpact comes into, comes into play as well. What happens also is that stakeholders need to be aware of the restrictions that academics work within and the restrictions of their role, the expectation, the norms of academic culture. And when those two things collide when they have an expectation that researchers will do X, that researchers don't understand. Researchers need to publish their work. They need to promote their work. There's very little room in there for the idea that there's privacy or confidentiality or, 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 you know, intellectual property debates within that kind of culture. And there's always a mismatch here. So this transgressions about, uh, which was another characteristics uh, of of impact, the transgressions on academic conduct, you know, when when the expectations about entrepreneurialism and, and, uh, you know, uh, academic, non-academic needs clashed with the norms that academics themselves feel you know implicitly in themselves but also the norms in which they have to act so when there was a miscommunication between these two things that um that's when the risk for impact increased and i think well, a lot of the research that we see on knowledge use look at how researchers kind of need to somehow translate their research to stakeholders. So they need to somehow mold themselves into the needs of stakeholders. And there's very little researches where stakeholders need to be aware and mold themselves to the norms and needs of academics and research too. And when those two things clash, the risk for impact is higher. Uh, fascinating. This is not a way that I tend to think about research, and and you're kind of opening my own mind to to yeah. Well, what does that look like, and and what do we need to do to make our stakeholders more aware of the research process, uh, the the ethics and norms uh, within that process, and uh, and and enable them to be part of uh, the, the 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 ethical and, and rigorous process. Uh, that is research. Um, 
and yet I can see this working in different ways in different contexts. So I totally agree with you when that comes to, say, political influence. I'm, I'm doing research um, that uh, is designed to answer a particular policy problem. Um, and um, and my policy customer uh, perhaps uh, likes what I've done um, uh, to start with, but then there's a change of government uh, halfway through the project. Uh, and all of a sudden now this is going towards the wrong objective uh, and now they want me to change what I'm doing. Well, sorry, that's not how it works. Yeah, it's, um, like, it's like I want, you know, it's, <laughs> you can't, research should be something that exists beyond, you know, political or ideological beliefs because it is about the pursuit of knowledge and the creation of new knowledge. And that's not to say that knowledge exists in a completely socially in a vacuum and it's not sensitive to those sorts of things. It is. But the fact that, you know, stakeholders should, you know, put in an order for what results they want and expect that to come out and they'll use that regardless with all the, you know, the tips and the branding that comes with the idea of objective academic research is an unrealistic expectation. And yet at the same time, I've done work, um, community research in Africa, um, and, and I've seen things changing in terms of new contexts, things changing over time, where actually I feel like there is a moral moral responsibility of the researcher to understand these things. So uh, I don't know, a community that um, changes composition is a huge influx of uh, of of migrants, um, uh, a new um, kind of social group that, that kind of moves in, and uh, and actually as a community now, you've got a whole load of people who have very different views, very different needs, um, and, and potentially quite acute needs. Uh, do you just uh, force on and uh, and help the the former elites, um, despite the fact that there are now these very new, different um, uh, groups with very important needs um or the other thing i've seen on a very regular basis is just uh, the problem that you set out to try and solve with that community gets superseded by something which is just way way bigger and more important and nobody's interested in the thing you were originally researching um uh, and and to what extent does it it can just feel awkward but is it right to just carry on regardless of the fact that nobody's interested in this anymore and you're actually wasting their time because they are just trying to survive now given mm. what has happened to them. Um, and, and I think you do have to, to adapt. Um, and that isn't, in those cases, that's not ideologically driven. Um, well, maybe my belief in, in, in prioritizing <laughs> the needs of, of, of the poor and the oppressed are, but, but I think, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe that is okay. Yeah, I think, I think that that's a really important point. And within the case studies that I saw, that kind of nuanced responsibility to stakeholders wasn't included. So perhaps that's something you have to include. But I think that your example really spells out my, my original point about what you need to do to reduce the risk of impact and clear, concise, ongoing dialogue between stakeholders and researchers from the outset is very important for reducing the risk of impact. Yeah. And all the way through, totally, yeah. So uh, related to this, then, I, I wonder if I can unpack the Cambridge Analytica case, because this really rocked my boat at the time. Um, and I just couldn't believe that this was not making headlines uh, for weeks. It kind of, there was a few, uh, other than um, Channel 4 News, uh, Observer, Guardian, um, it kind of was like, yeah, there's a, an issue, and then it kind of all blew over. <laughs> Uh, and I kind of stayed with the story and watched it develop and was just more and more horrified. And uh, 
I remember at the time I went back and I read the original paper. Um, it was 2011, 12, 13, yeah, something like that. that. Uh, and yeah. it was actually won paper of the year in the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. And the thing that disturbed me most was reading this paper, I got to the conclusion of the paper and the authors basically predicted what had happened and said, uh, and they put this health warning at the end and said, uh, in the wrong hands, these tools could be used to manipulate populations, elections, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and I was like, so what do you do in this situation? These people clearly were aware of the risks. Uh, they published open access, as we should, um, uh, pointing out those risks, mm -hmm. and as a result, uh, uh, pretty much gave this gift. Uh, so here's a good idea <laughs> to a bunch of people who read the paper. Um, and uh, and so that really got me thinking, well, what on earth can you do? So you, you've, you've made a plan, you've identified the risks, uh, but that still is the problem. And, and for me, the the key issue was the the way in which that group lost control. And I think there were some key mistakes that they made in terms of how they uh, gave control to people that they perhaps shouldn't have done. Um, uh, and also, uh, obviously, some uh, some fairly uh, major ethical questions around um, uh, the, the data that they used to, to power their work. But, uh, but putting that aside, my, my sense was that had they decided, yeah, this is high risk enough that we need to keep control over this, uh, perhaps then they could have spun this out in a very different way that would have retained much more control for the researchers that would have then enabled them to manage that risk given what they had identified. And 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 I wonder whether actually this, this impact planning process where you identify a risk that big has to then build in mitigations that are designed to retain control. And even if the researcher themselves has no interest in leading a spin-out company, that may be something that universities need to look at to say, well, yeah, we need to make sure uh, because ultimately Cambridge, Cambridge University got brought into this and yeah, th this was their reputation on the line as well then. Okay, well, first things first, disclaimer, knowledge for knowledge's sake, it was a stunning paper. It was stunning. Like, it, I read it, just went, wow. Like, some, you know, you look at some people's minds and you're like, that's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, Evil. I got that brilliant. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. So that aside, I mean, this is another characteristic of Grimpact that we saw that was difficult to navigate within the impact evaluation discourse, and that is who is to blame. And as you pointed out, at the end of the paper, the author said, this could be used to you know, manipulate elections and all of this sort of stuff, which is a genre of writing that we all have to do for every academic paper. We have to say, how can this be used in the future? You know, So for the researchers' point of view, they had done their due diligence by saying that it could have like this impact somewhere. But by putting that warn warning, it's like, you know, protect with care at the end. But by putting that warning, you know, line at the end of the paper the researchers felt they had done their due diligence they had done their role and that anything that happened beyond that you know convention of putting in a warning about what this could potentially be doing at the end of an academic paper that despite being open access no one reads except you and I perhaps and everyone else who loves a paper they'd already done their role yeah. so anything that happened beyond that was not their fault right? and so to require them to put an 
a, a plan about why this research might be dangerous in the future, it can be seen as futile if it never eventuates to anything because sometimes it just never eventuates to anything. Mm. It was the right situation at the right time and there's a lot of research about, you know, uh, the context to create, you know, new knowledge or have impact. You know, you can go down Kingdon's parallel streams if you want to, but we're not doing that. But for the researchers, they had done their role and it finished there. To ask them to put a, a plan in contact for the future is by current, even by current conventions, you know, coming up Ref 2222, results coming up with impact, beyond. is beyond the normal role that a researcher for research's sake, needs to participate in. So asking them to do something, putting, asking them to put a plan together for something that may or may not happen is perhaps, you know, unrealistic expectations unless that becomes more, more general for everyone to do. But we've also got to understand that these researchers are practices and research culture, which is overworked, underpaid and completely, you know, <laughs> based on uh, free labour in a way, and we can go into that too. But... The idea that they have to do extra works beyond what is normally expected from them, they just wanted a publication, you know, that's it, is is one of the problems. So one of the problems and one of the risk factors for Grimpact. So I'm not saying, I'm not advocating that we have to do that. I'm just highlighting the tensions that there exists beyond within academic culture between who is to blame and where does a researcher's role end so that they are not necessarily responsible for what comes afterwards. The way that we conceptualise impact for uh, research evaluation purposes now is about creating a case study where there's a piece of research and then we map you know, what goes on in the future and we get that comes back to reward us. But we don't do that for Grimpact and research is something that we can only, you know, map benefits for you know can we can have individual reward we don't do that for Grimpact because perhaps it's not the best political tool to say what bad things research has produced but again um it's, it's very difficult to to change convention around how we evaluate things and and how we you know produce an objective evaluation of impacts last Grimpact into the future but yeah I mean who is to blame is one thing that I highlighted the characteristic, but I don't know who what the um, answer is. I I don't know what the answer is. There is an argument about you know research continues to gain value into the future. It loses value in the future. You know, after a hundred years, you know, <laughs> when do we stop? Can we blame Einstein for the nuclear bomb? I mean, so where does it stop and where does it end? And convention at the moment within research culture means that if you put that disclaimer at the end of the paper, your job is done. I would argue that it is each of us, it's our individual responsibility to do that moral thinking and ask ourselves, where does our role end? Um, and for some of us, uh, we can go with that convention and say, great, job done. I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> but at the same time, I think we need to understand what the options are if we want to stay with our impacts because my experience is that impacts only matures and grows over time uh, and mm -hmm. if you're on a negative trajectory then your grimpact uh, typically snowballs um, as you've said very rapidly uh, over time often 
Uh, and so you can have more than one line, Mark. You can have one line where impact is increasing in one area and yeah. used by one group. But you can have a yeah. parallel line that's going in the opposite direction yeah. if it's being used to other purposes with another group. So yes, that loses value as well. Yeah, nightmare. Mm. Yeah, so so I I use stakeholder analysis to try and tackle some of these kinds of issues. And uh, I wonder what you think about this, Gemma, and uh, feel free to be critical here because maybe this is a great practical idea. It works for me. Maybe it's a bit manipulative. Um, and I guess listeners will make their own mind up about this, but I think we need to decide um, at what point our responsibility ends. And if we want to stay with us, stakeholder analysis is quite a nice way to identify these dual, maybe multiple tracks that are uh, uh, that our impact might take. Um, and so what I'm doing is uh, at the outset of a project, uh, we're identifying who has a stake in the various different outcomes from this research. Uh, and depending on what the research ends up saying, I don't know at this point, uh, it may play into uh, one of at least two different camps who are in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. So um, if, uh, if we get one output, uh, then we've got one group of people who are really happy and the other group are really upset uh, or vice versa. And so this is for, for me about then talking to these people, understanding their perspectives and building a pathway to impact that can work for both of those groups, as well as a risk mitigation plan for the, both of those groups, uh, depending on whether it goes their way or not. And as long as you can keep both groups engaged with the research and give them early access to your findings to give them a sense of, look, it looks like it's going your way or against your way. Uh, then uh, two quite nice things happen. The first is that I get early feedback on this and the people who don't like my research uh, will often give me critical feedback. Uh, and in some cases, huh, actually, you're right. Uh, maybe we could do better. Uh, and if that's how you're going to discredit the research and claim this doesn't apply and uh, you're not going to do anything about it, well, let's go and actually have a look at some of those things that you're saying and find out if indeed there is uh, any truth in them. And as a result, we do better research. Um, and uh, where, uh, where where that's not something I can research, uh, it's more of an ideological thing, at least I'm flushing out now the arguments they're going to use to try and delegitimize uh, and undermine my research so I can prepare for that as well. Um, uh, and at the end of the day, uh, I've worked with them closely enough that, yeah, we're going to publish our work, but you're not getting blindsided um, and having huge negative impacts. You've got time to prepare. I'm working with you to uh, mitigate those risks to your interests. Uh, and as a result, those people for whom the research goes against them say, yeah, you were, uh, you were fair, you were even-handed, it was all transparent, and we still trust you, and we'll continue to work with you in future, even although this project didn't go our way. Meantime, you're working in parallel with the other group for whom it did go their way, and you're powering towards those impacts that you planned at the outset. Uh, and my sense is that this can then give us a very practical way of uh, trying to get a sense of what the impacts and grimpacts might be from different perspectives at the outset, but then keeping an eye on this and managing this with those different groups all the way through so that we can keep things friendly, uh, build trust, um, but also be able to, to neutralize some of the, the, the most negative feedback that, uh, that might be ideologically driven to try and undermine what we're doing. Mm. Okay, there's, I think there's one problem here with this whole okay. idea, which I think is great, but there's one issue that perhaps needs to be resolved, and that's 
that's the fact that you're assuming that perhaps we know who the stakeholders are at the beginning so you can evolve them. <laughs> and there is the idea that perhaps because research and research impact is, as we know, serendipitous, what about the stakeholders we haven't yet envisaged yet? How do we capture them and get them involved? The thing about Grimpact is the contagion aspect, which means that it is co-opted by other groups really quickly for their own purposes. They might not necessarily be so easily mappable, nor open to conversation about how they're using their research in an objective way, nor talking to the researchers who might necessarily might contribute information that goes against what they want to use the information for. So I think it's really interesting, but again, you need to you assume that you already know who the stakeholders are, that again, stakeholders are, are this dialogue is something that the stakeholders are open to in the first place and that um, the stakeholders are easily mappable and identifiable and, and it might not necessarily be the case. Uh, one of the things that we saw in the Cambridge Analytica cases and also the MMR vaccine case is that it was co-opted by groups that are not necessarily trackable through your, your normal uh, route. So they, they use research for, I'm talking mainly through social media, and there's some really interesting research about how uh, in social media, if you come in with an if you come into a group that's tweeting the same things like anti-vaccine rhetoric, for example, and you come in with a piece of information that rejects or you know completely undermines the basis of which people are finding information that they will reject it as true and therefore you won't be able to have the impact there so the the idea that a researcher who did the paper can come into an anti-vaccine group and say well sorry guys but you're using it wrong and that's not what I said and for them to listen <laughs> and then change is perhaps one of the problems I mean, of that kind of analysis so not all stakeholders are amenable to being so reflective or you know of the use of their research for their own you know ideological gains and I think that's one of the problems I think that's the only that's but you can do that with some stakeholders and again you know maintaining a dialogue is something that I say should happen and I've just said that perhaps that's not possible yeah, I think both are true and also I mean you have to understand that as society evolves and changes and as we go through you know life you the context in which we view results changes. And, and sometimes that happens very quickly. Uh, sometimes that's completely unpredictable. Who saw that there was a pandemic happening, you know, for example. So uh, it's very difficult to be able to foresee these kinds of things in order to engage in, in a meaningful stakeholder analysis. Um, but yeah. this is one of the things that raises the risk of, well, that increases the risk that for impact will occur is the is the way that which but again i mean one of the things that i say is that the longer grimpact goes unchecked in evaluation processes the more likely it is proliferate and perhaps you know work against the reputation that research is so 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 desperately trying to build with society by by using impact as advantages of how they can benefit society but if these things go unchecked then it, it looks as if research is not trying to engage in its mistakes or engage engage with its mistakes in a way that you know can admit yeah we got it wrong or maybe that wasn't what it was intended on those kinds of dialogues that that pushes the debate forward and 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 by doing so re-establishes and re reaffirms the trust relationship that that is necessary between science research or science and research 
and society within a civil science partnership, that's extremely important as well. So the longer we let GRIMPAC proliferate unchecked, the more likelihood that that trust will break down. And that's unfortunate. It's not good yeah. for everyone, anyone. And uh, yeah, if you're looking for an easy way out, um, the sad news is, uh, I think what we're both saying is you, you need to get involved, you need to get engaged, you need to find out what's going on um, and uh, and get your hands dirty. If, uh, and take if, responsibility, yeah. no matter how painful it is. Yeah. 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 So obviously lots lots more to, 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 to study in this area. I know this is just one of, of many diverse strands of research you're working on at the moment, Gemma, but what are your plans just to conclude for this, uh, for this line of research? What are you working on now? Well, now that I'm at the University of Bristol, what we're working towards is setting up a GRIMPAC repository, actually, and that is creating, you know, at the moment, the research that I talked about here was only based on three case studies. And the more, the more case studies that we can gather, the more likely it is that we can understand, you know, the, the characteristics that make GRIMPAC more likely and be able to anticipate them, build them into evaluation networks, uh, stop them, stop them, stop GRIMPAC proliferating and also put researchers back in charge of their research, both the good, the bad and the ugly. So the GRIMPAC repository is something that we're working on to establish uh, within the next 12 months. Um, And I really do encourage everybody who's listening, please do get in contact with us. If you have an example, if you want to get in contact with the research, um, please do get in contact with me. GRIMPAC is something that we as a community need to take ownership and responsibility for. And to that end, it's important that as many people who are interested in mapping and understanding the GRIMPAC are as involved as possible and as that they want to do. So please do get in contact with us. Fantastic. I will give this some thought myself and uh, put out my feelers because it's such an important issue. So great to hear that you're doing this. Gemma, it has been a pleasure. This was uh, more uh, than I was expecting. Uh, I loved the session that you did for us uh, a few weeks ago. Um, But yeah, to have the privilege of getting to have this one-to-one with you and to go into this depth, uh, it's been enthralling. And uh, I hope everyone else has found it just as interesting. Gemma, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. No, thanks so much. Absolute pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you.